A video version of this podcast is available at AboundingJoy.com and also on our YouTube pages. Hey, my name's Steve Hall, and I want to thank you for joining our Bible study today. Before we get into today's Bible study, I would like to invite you to come to check out our Standing Firm Bible study class in person. We're at Fairview Baptist Tabernacle in Sweetwater, Tennessee. We meet in the downstairs fellowship hall of the auditorium building at 10.15 a.m. on Sunday mornings immediately after the 9 o'clock worship service. Here's a little map for you. See the little red lines? (laughs) Notice if you're in the auditorium, just follow those red arrows. If you're in the back, go straight down that hallway behind you to the stairwell. If you're near the front of the auditorium, you can go out the left door, and I mean left as you're sitting in the auditorium looking toward the pulpit and the choir, go to your left, go out that door, all the way down to the end of the hall, keep to your left, all the way down to the stairwell, and then turn right and go down the stairwell. We meet in the fellowship hall around the tables near the kitchen downstairs. If you have trouble with stairs, there are men driving golf carts near the entrance to the auditorium building at the crossover there who will be glad to give you a ride to a door that enters the building on our level, so you won't have to do any steps at all. We're a co-educational class, men and women both invited. We're for all ages, doesn't matter how old or how young. Children and youth are certainly welcome, but some children and youth actually prefer to go to the children and youth classes, which meet at the same time we meet, more on their level. Dress, totally casual. Class members are certainly encouraged to participate in the Bible study, ask questions, engage in conversation. But listen, if you happen to be kind of shy, we promise we're not going to embarrass you. We're not going to ask you to read. We're not going to ask you to pray. We're not going to ask you any specific questions directed to you. It isn't unusual for class members who are kind of shy just to not say anything at all once class gets started. So that's your choice. So I'm just saying, please don't feel intimidated if you happen to be the shy type. I know sometimes the first meeting is kind of tough for the shy people. But there's never been a time when it's been more important for God's people to meet in small Bible study fellowship groups in order to encourage each other. We've got to stand firm in his truth. We've got to stand firm on his word. These are very confusing days we're living in. You know that. So we'd love for you to join us and just see for yourself what God's doing in our class. If you'd like more information... Go to AboundingJoy.com. There's the web address right there on the screen. You can click on the Standing Firm Bible Class menu item when you get there. You may want to hit pause right now or do a screen save to make sure you get the spelling right, but you can learn more information about us there. Now, here's today's Bible study. I hope and pray it helps you grow stronger in our Lord Jesus Christ and in your knowledge of His Word and of His will for your life. Well, hey guys, thanks for joining me in Bible study again today. We are working our way through the fifth chapter of this incredible book of Romans. Last time we were here in Romans chapter 5, we considered the way in which we're related to Adam. And we considered how God ordered it such that when Adam sinned, we all became guilty with Adam. We were in Adam. We saw there's a physical and natural relationship to the fact that he was the ancestor of us all, And in that sense, we were in him. But more importantly, we saw how Adam was appointed by God to be the head of the human race. And therefore, the effects of his sin passed on to all his descendants. And we looked at what that might mean, looked at some analogies. And then we looked at the last phrase of verse 14, which tells us that Adam was a type of him who was to come. Adam is a type 
of Christ. And that means there's certain similarities between Adam and Christ. Namely, both Adam and Christ were appointed by God to be heads of a stream of humanity. There are two great branches of mankind. All humanity is in Adam. Adam is the ancestor of us all at birth. We're all descendants of Adam and we're all in Adam. And then, of course, there are those of us who are in Christ. That's all of us who've experienced the new birth in Christ. And so Adam and Christ each stood as a representative of all his people, and each one has passed on to his people the effects of his work. Remember, the primary thrust of this whole passage from verse 12 down to verse 21 is to show that just as we were once related to Adam, so now all of us who've trusted Jesus are related to Jesus. The point of this passage is to make that comparison clear. But we've already begun to see that while the similarities are critically important, we need to understand that the contrast between Adam and our Lord Jesus Christ are huge. And that's why after the last phrase of verse 14, he gives us the parenthesis of verses 15, 16, and 17 to highlight these contrasts between Adam and Christ. So today, what we're going to do is take a little bit closer look at this second parenthesis, beginning in verse 15 and looking on down through verse 17. But first, let's just read this whole passage again, just to get it in context, beginning in verse 12. This is God's word. Listen carefully. Stay with me. Therefore, just as through one man sin entered into the world, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. For until the law, sin was in the world, but sin is not imputed when there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam until Moses, even over those who had not sinned in the likeness of the offense of Adam, who is a type of him who was to come. But the free gift is not like the transgression, for if by the transgression of the one the many died, much more did the grace of God and the gift by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, abound to the many. And the gift is not like that which came through the one who sinned, for on the one hand the judgment rose from one transgression, resulting in condemnation, but on the other hand the free gift arose from many transgressions, resulting in justification." For if by the transgression of the one, death reigned through the one, much more those who receive the abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness will reign in life through the one, Jesus Christ. So then as through one transgression, there resulted condemnation to all men, even so through one act of righteousness, there resulted justification of life to all men. For as through the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, even so, through the obedience of the one, the many will be made righteous. And the law came in that the transgression might increase. But where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. That as sin reigned in death, even so grace might reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. The last time we were in chapter 5, we talked about one of the contrasts between Adam and Jesus. It's not explicitly stated in this passage, even though it's very much implied, but it's explicitly stated in Paul's first letter to the Corinthians in chapter 15. We looked at this last time. Let's look at it again. Thus it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. 
But it's not the spiritual that's first, but the natural, then the spiritual. The first man was from the earth, a man of dust. The second man is from heaven. As was the man of dust, so also are those who are the dust. And as is the man of heaven, so also are those who are of heaven. Just as we've borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. So he makes it very clear there. So our relationship to Adam is physical and natural, and our relationship to Christ is spiritual. But it's important to emphasize that does not mean any less real. We talked about that last time. There's a danger for some people anyway to see spiritual things as somehow less real. If anything, they are more real because the things that we see, the physical things are temporary, passing away. The things that are not seen are eternal. Now, when we read these verses, there's an obvious contrast all the way through. When we read it focusing on Adam, for example, we'll notice words like transgression, judgment, condemnation, Death reigned, made sinners. These words just jump out at us. It's hard, not, it's hard to miss them. When we read it through focusing on Jesus, on Christ, words like free gift, grace, abound, justification, receive, abundance of grace, gift of righteousness, reign in life, justification of life. These words and phrases jump out at us when we're focusing on Jesus. So I want us to consider some of these contrasts. For example, in verse 16, he contrasts one transgression of Adam with many transgressions that Jesus blots out. The wonderful truth is that not only have we been delivered from all that we inherited from Adam, we've also been cleansed and delivered from all the sins we ourselves have ever committed. And we've all sinned a great deal more than we realize (laughs) the word receive in verse 17, those who receive the abundance of grace. That carries an implied contrast anyway, because we became guilty in Adam unconsciously. We didn't have to think about it. We just were born that way. God has to reveal it to us that we were guilty in Adam. But we don't become righteous in Christ unconsciously. We have to consciously, voluntarily receive and trust Jesus. We repent of our sins and trust him very consciously. So the word receive is extremely important here. We don't want to miss that. Another contrast is found in verses 16 and 18. Verses 16 and 18 tell us that judgment arose from one transgression. When Adam disobeyed God and ate the forbidden fruit. But the middle of verse 18 teaches us that it was through one act of righteousness, an act of righteousness that enabled us to be in Christ. The deed of Adam that's affected all of us was a transgression. The deed of Christ that's affected all of us who receive him was an act of righteousness. A great contrast, of course. Look back at verse 15. We see two beautiful words that Paul keeps coming back to again and again and again in this letter. The words are grace and gift. Much more did the grace of God and the gift by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, abound to the many. Look at verse 16. The gift is not like that which came through the one who sinned. Last part of verse 16. On the other hand, the free gift, there it is again, arose from many transgressions. Comes back to that thought again in verse 17, the middle of the verse there. Much more those who received the abundance of grace and the gift of righteousness. God wants us to know how important these words are. He keeps coming back to them again and again, underlining it, emphasizing it. Grace, gift, grace, gift. He just hammers it home. He doesn't want us to miss it. We need to have those words engraved in our hearts and minds. Grace, gift, grace, 
gifts. And of course, the contrast is with the idea of wages. We finally get to chapter 6, at the end of chapter 6 and verse 23, we're going to read this. The wages, the wages, the wages of sin is death. But here is again, the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. The wages of sin is death. Sin earns a wage. Wages death. Grace is the opposite. Grace means unmerited favor. Grace is kindness towards those who don't deserve it. We don't deserve that kindness in any way. Remember back in the first part of this chapter, we considered the reasons we exult in God. When we were sinners, we were ungodly, we were helpless, we were enemies of God. And what did he do? He justified us. That's grace. God didn't choose you or me because we were better than everybody else. If he'd done that, what he did would no longer be called grace. It wouldn't be grace. And for the same reason, our goodness is not the reason why he keeps us. We're kept by his grace. It's all grace. It's so important that we examine ourselves and the way we respond to this word grace and that word gift. Because we ought to be passionate about these words. These words should thrill us. We need to embrace these words with love and affection and thanksgiving and joy and and praise to God. We ought to enjoy talking about grace and talking about his gift of grace. Because Pharisees don't. (laughs) Pharisees, legalists, begin to feel real uncomfortable when the subject of grace comes up. Legalists, Pharisees, they kind of take pride in doing some of the work themselves that they believe contributes somehow to their favor with God and their salvation. But grace leaves no room for that. There's no room for pride in grace. We don't have any basis for pride. None of us deserve this. If we find it difficult to forgive people personally, that may be a clue that we've got a problem with grace. If we somehow feel that people have got to earn blessings from us, that may be a clue that we've got a problem embracing this whole concept of grace. We need to examine ourselves here. Do we really embrace grace? And we need to all pray that God would root out these tendencies we may have towards Pharisaism, legalism, and that God would enable us to really fully and completely just embrace with great love and passion and thanksgiving the words grace and free gift. So important. Such a contrast. Now, there's another word in verse 15 that points us to another tremendous contrast between Christ and Adam, and that word is abound. You notice that word, the last part of the verse there? Much more did the grace of God and the gift by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, abound to the many. Abound. The same idea of abounding is implied in those first words, much more, much more, abounding, much more. We see it again in verse 17, the middle of the verse, much more much more those who receive the abundance, the abundance of grace. Comes out again in verse 20. Grace abounded all the more. Grace abounded all the more. Now think about that enormous contrast of that with what we have in Adam. In Adam, we're guilty. We sinned in Adam. And as this passage has clearly shown us, that guilt and that sin brings about judgment and condemnation and death and destruction. In Christ, we receive justification and life and abounding grace on the one hand. In Adam, death. Death, totally non-productive, dead end, certainly no fruitfulness, no development, no growth, just death, despair, hopelessness. It's horrible. But in Christ, and this may sound just a little strange at first, there's not only grace. Sounds a little strange, doesn't it, to say 
use the word only with the word grace, only grace, because the word grace all by itself sounds wonderful enough. What do you mean not only grace? But God chooses to underscore and emphasize his grace by telling us he gives us more than just grace. He gives us abounding grace. We need to meditate on this, guys. The idea, the picture he's giving here is grace that just keeps growing and overflowing and increasing more and more and on and on without limit, multiplying, developing, reproducing, abounding. It's the same concept that he hints at in the Gospel of John in chapter 1, verse 16. He said, for from his fullness, the fullness of Christ, we have all received, look at this, grace upon grace. Grace upon grace. The pictures of grace going on and on so abundant it cannot be measured. More and more grace. About the time we think we've got all of Jesus, about the time we think we've experienced everything he could possibly want us to experience, God breaks through and reminds us there's more and there's more and there's more and it's going to continue throughout eternity. Abounding, overflowing grace, ongoing, forever. Abounding grace. It's amazing. Hard for us to wrap our brains around, but we need to try. <laughs> you remember the final pages of C.S. Lewis' book, The Last Battle? Aslan saying, come further in, come higher up, come on, there's more. <laughs> it just keeps on getting more and more amazing. Look at Ephesians chapter 2. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Look at this. So that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace. The immeasurable riches of his grace abounding grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Look at Ephesians chapter 3, verse 8. To me, though I'm the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. The unsearchable riches of Christ. So God's teaching us that it's really too much for our little brains. We really can't grasp all the implications of His abounding grace. Grace upon grace, the immeasurable richnesses, riches of his grace, the unsearchable riches of Christ. It's too much for us. We can't wrap our brains around it, but we need to try our best. We need to contemplate it. We need to meditate on it and try to understand what he's done for us and what he's doing for us and what he's going to do for us. He's done so much more for us than we usually think about. I mean, if he had stopped with just forgiving our sins, we think, this is awesome. <laughs> My sins have been forgiven. If he just place us back in the position that Adam was in before Adam sinned, we'd say, wow, this is incredible. This is wonderful. But he says, no, I've done much, much more than that. We're no longer in Adam at all. We're in Christ. It's more than we can understand. When God placed Adam in the Garden of Eden, there was a sense in which Adam was on a kind of probation. He was innocent to his point up, up, up till the time he sinned, but he had the ability to move out of God's favor. He was liable to fall, fall away from God. And of course, that's exactly what he did. But now we're in Christ. We're not on probation like Adam was. God's going to drive that truth home to us very powerfully in Romans chapter 6 and Romans chapter 8. Uh, I'm excited about those chapters. Lord willing, someday we'll get there. But once we're truly in Christ, once we've truly trusted him like a child, he's promised he will keep us. 
We cannot fall out of his grace. He guarantees our glorification. He teaches that in many places in his word. We saw it a few minutes ago in in Ephesians chapter 2. Look at it again. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. Look at this. And raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. That's all past tense. He's telling us that he's already done it. Back in chapter 5, we saw the same truth in verse 9. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him through the wrath of God. He said, it's it's, it's as good as done. It's going to be done. If you've already experienced my salvation, you're going to be saved from the wrath. Communicates it again in chapter 8, verse 30. Those whom he predestined, he also called. Those whom he called, he also justified. Those whom he justified, he also glorified. He uses past tense. Isn't that strange? We've not experienced glorification yet, but he said it's as good as done. I've settled it, God says. You can't miss it. You see how he piles his truth up just to overwhelm us with assurance? He said, I've predestined you. I've called you. I've justified you. And I have glorified you. And we say, well, wait, Lord, I've not experienced glorification yet. He said, well, you will. It's as certain as if I'd already done it. He communicates it again in this tremendous conclusion in chapter 8. Look at these words. But in all these things, we overwhelmingly conquer. Not just a little bit, overwhelmingly. This abundant grace through him who loved us. For I'm convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, look at this, nor any other created thing, nothing in all creation shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. God wants his kids to bask in this truth, guys. He wants us to relish his abounding grace. He wants us to enjoy it, to appreciate it, and to exult in him because of his abounding grace. He wants us to walk in this fullness of our Lord Jesus Christ, enjoy him to the max. It may be that the greatest hindrance to many, many Christians enjoying the fullness of Christ is that we just don't really think about who we are in him. We don't think about what he's done for us. We don't realize, we don't think deeply enough. We're we're staying too much in the shallow end. And that's one reason we're moving kind of slowly through these verses. We need to meditate on them. And the longer we meditate on them, the more likely the light is to get brighter and brighter inside us of the truth of these these verses. So easy for us to get out of balance here. Most of us are keenly aware of our weaknesses. We, We are. We're still living in the flesh, right? We know we're weak. And we know we're susceptible to temptations and we're fighting temptations. We know we're in that battle and we're keenly aware of the temptations we tend to fall in. And sometimes we're so aware of that that we we forget the rest of the story. Sometimes, for example, when we're sharing the gospel with people, we'll use an illustration that goes something like this. Uh, And I've used this many, many times with people. I think it's a good illustration. But, you know, we'll say, you know, somebody has said receiving the gift of eternal life is like a beggar receiving a gift from a king. You know, the beggar doesn't deserve the gift from the king. He can't earn it. There's nothing he could do to deserve it. So that beggar just receives. He's, all he can do is receive the gift and be thankful. So it's, somebody said some sharing the gospel is kind of like one beggar telling another beggar where to find some bread. <laughs> and I've used that many times when I'm sharing the gospel. And there's nothing wrong with it. It's true. 
The danger of that illustration is what we may leave out is that God doesn't leave us as beggars. We come to him as spiritual beggars. All of us are on the same plane. We're on the same ground. We're in the same boat. But when we come to him, we're not beggars anymore. We're children of the heavenly king. We're enjoying grace upon grace upon grace, abounding grace. I want you to use your imagination with me just for a moment. Let's see if we can get a picture here that might help us appreciate this. Imagine that you've been imprisoned and it's in the most horrible dungeon you can imagine. It's dark. The walls are massive, heavy, impenetrable. Your cell is slimy and nasty and totally dark. And there's a horrible, disgusting stench in the air. It's constant. You have no hope for release. You long ago gave up making scratches on the wall to mark the passing of the days. And you're just sitting there in a dark, wet corner waiting to die. And then suddenly, unexpectedly, the cell door swings wide open. Light floods in and sweet, clean air floods into your cell. And a man says, you've been pardoned. You're free to go. And then you follow him, and one by one, he opens the gates of the prison until you find yourself standing outside those massive walls, looking at open fields in the countryside, wind blowing in your face. And you stand there, and you begin to realize against all hope, you've been set free. And you begin walking through the fields, murmuring yourself over and over, I'm free. This is amazing. I, I can't believe it. I'm really free. And you walk to the top of a hill, and you're saying to yourself over and over and over, I'm free. I'm really free. <laughs> Pretty soon you're weeping and shouting, I'm free, I'm free, I'm free. You just can't contain yourself. And you finally will run into people. And they may not fully understand what's happened to you, but you got to share it. <laughs> you got to tell them, I I've been released from a horrible prison. I'm free. <laughs> and you, you get the picture, don't you? Our, our relationship with Christ should be like that. Only to use Paul's words, so much more, so much more in Christ. Here's one more scenario that may help. Same idea. Imagine you're hanging onto a piece of driftwood and you're in the middle of a cold, lonely, endless sea. Can't see anything but water all around. Dark. You're being tossed by these huge cold waves of the ocean. And you know it's only a matter of a short time till you go under the water for the last time. You know it's useless to try to swim. It's hopeless. You're as good as dead. And then suddenly, out of nowhere, a ship appears. And within minutes, you're on board. Unbelievably, you're safe. You've been saved. Our relationship to Christ is like that. But again, it's so much more. We are free. We are saved. But so much more. We're actually children of the heavenly king. And as we work our way through Romans, hopefully we're going to get this picture better and better. We're going to see clearer and clearer who we are in Christ, what we have in him. And hopefully it will result in other people in our lives seeing the joy in our faces and the joy in our lives that come when we begin to realize who we really are in Christ. There's a song that most of you probably know. It's called A Child of the King. You remember that old hymn, Child of the King? A few years ago, the Gaithers did a version of that song with a bit of an Irish sound to it, but the words capture what God's teaching us here in Romans. So I'm going to play it for you right now. See if we can sing along with it. Think about this. Think about what we can learn from the lyrics of this song. It's pretty awesome.
Father, help us to appreciate more than we ever have before your abounding grace upon grace. Help us to appreciate what we have and who we are in Jesus. And Lord, may that cause us to be filled and overflowing with joy that we really are children of the heavenly King. Lord, you're amazing. You've done an amazing thing. And so many times we don't let ourselves think deeply enough about what you've done to give you great praise and great glory and great honor. So Lord, we pray that somehow we'll get this internalized, that others will see and desire this joy, this, this relationship we have with you, this just phenomenal and amazing and overwhelming. Thank you, Lord, for your abounding grace. All because of Jesus, we pray in his name. Amen.